Hello and welcome to From Balloons to Drones, the official podcast of BalloonsToDrones.com, where we explore the development of military air power from the earliest days of flight until today. I'm your host, Mike Hank. And when it comes to aviation history, one of the most popular topics for many people is the important role that women aviators play in World War II. Groups like the WASP and WAVES are a key way that women participated in World War II by flying on aircraft or serving on air crews. But after that war was over, most of these women were blocked from those positions, and far less attention has been paid to the women who entered military aviation service after World War II. So starting in the 1970s, the Navy was a leader in opening military aviation roles to women. And to talk about that story, we're joined today by Pulitzer Award-winning author Beverly Weintraub, author of the new book, Wings of Gold, the story of the first women naval aviators from Lions Press. Beverly, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Really excited to talk about this book with you. So let's start with the women themselves, make sure we name their names and everybody knows who we're talking about. Rosemary Mariner is the central figure, but this is a book about really six people. Can you give us a quick rundown of who these folks are? Sure. So these were the first six women officially brought into military flight training as an experiment by the Navy in 1973. Three were already commissioned officers or officers trainees. Three were civilians. So the two officers were Judith Neufer, later Judith Neufer Bruner, um, who was working as a computer programmer in San Diego when the Navy opened flight training to women. She had grown up, or grown up around aviation. She had soloed a Piper Cub at 16. It was her dad's airplane, but she had never gotten her private pilot certificate. Also a commissioned officer was Barbara Allen, later Barbara Allen Rainey, who would become what they called female naval aviator number one. She won her wings of gold first. Um, she had a little bit of flight experience. Um, she was a communications watch officer for the Central Command Atlantic um, when she switched over to uh, flight training. And she flew the C-1 Trader in the T-39 uh, Sabre Liner. Judy, by the way, became the first female hurricane hunter and flew the P-3 Orion. Jane Skiles, later Jane Skiles O'Day, was in women's officer school, which was abandoned a couple years later, but was very different from the men's officer school that the male naval aviators attended um, she had heard about the program and thought it might happen, so she enlisted and was in the middle of her training when, when flight training opened up, so she um, applied for the program and got in. She would become the first woman to fly the C-130 Hercules, the first pregnant military pilot, the first military pilot mom, was one of the first to carrier qualify when women were finally allowed to do that, and to serve on an aircraft carrier, and she retired as a captain. Now, the other three were civilians. Joellen Drag, later Joellen Drag Osland, who came from a Navy family but had no flight experience. She was the only one who did not. She was a recent college grad, wasn't sure what she wanted to do, and her boyfriend was in the reserves and said he saw this notice about women going to flight training. So she signed up, became the first female helo pilot. And when she discovered that at her first billet, she wasn't allowed to land on a ship with her squadron and her requests to fly with her squadron went nowhere, she became a plaintiff in a federal class action lawsuit challenging the um, exclusion, the combat exclusion uh, for women. Anna Maria Scott was also a recent college grad trying to find her way and decide what she wanted to do. She joined up, I think she was living in D.C. at the time, uh, became the second female helo pilot flew VIPs around the East Coast and made a little bit of history because one of the lieutenant commanders in her division thought that this ban on women from ships made no sense. So he kind of snuck her on board. She had to stay inside the Gila with her visor down and not come out so nobody would know that there was a woman 
in the crew, but he did that because he thought she should have shipboard experience, even though technically they were not allowed to do that. And the sixth to complete the program was um, Rosemary Bryant Mariner, who was Rosemary Bryant Mirams when she signed on. She was the only one of the six who was focused on aviation as a career. She got her private at 17. She used to take her sisters to watch the jets take off and land from Miramar when she was babysitting them. She enrolled at Purdue University, was the first woman to graduate from the aviation technology program. She graduated a year and a half early to sign on to the program when it was announced. And she would become the first woman to fly Navy tactical jet, the first to command an aviation squadron, also one of the first to carry or qualify and serve shipboard. And she would use her position and her leadership to become an outspoken advocate uh, for women in the military up to her retirement as captain and, and beyond. That's fantastic. Wow. Private pilot's license at 17. That's amazing. So how did you find this project in the first place and why I decided to write a book on it? So the project actually found me. I'm a private pilot. I have my instrument rating. I've been flying for a couple of decades. I spent 24 years working at the New York Daily News on the copy desk and as an editorial writer. And one of my former Daily News colleagues works for the opinion section of the Washington Post. So every once in a while, if something happens in the news about women and airplanes, I'll get an email. Will you write something? And I've written a couple of pieces. And when Captain Mariner passed away of cancer in 2019, the Navy did its first all-woman missing man flyover at her funeral. And this made huge headlines, got tremendous attention. So I had an email, would you write something? And I had no idea who Captain Mariner was at the time. I didn't know this story. Um, But I started digging in and I wrote a piece for the Post. And then a couple of months later, an editor at Lions Press emailed me and said she'd seen the piece and they thought it might make for an interesting book. What do you think? So it, the project just found me. That's amazing when such a great project just kind of falls in your lap like that. That's that's incredible. Now, one of the things I really enjoyed about this book is how you set up the context of, you know, this is all happening at a time where, you know, a lot of shifts are happening in U.S. culture and, and kind of in the world more broadly. Like you mentioned, the end of the draft, you know, we're talking about kind of the tail end of the Vietnam War, about the women's liberation movement. How do all these different factors, like, factor into this shift happening for women in aviation around this time? So uh, many people don't know that women had served in the Navy since 1908. And in World War I, there were women, almost 12,000 women served, and many were in the brand new Bureau of Aeronautics. In World War II, the waves performed all sorts of aviation-related jobs. Some were airborne navigators and taught men how to navigate as air crew, official air crew. And of course, the WASP, who were um, civilian female pilots, um, recruited by the Army to ferry aircraft, and they flew every airplane uh, the United States could produce for the military. But after the war, the WASP were disbanded and their service records were buried. And in 1948, the Armed Forces Integration Act, which dissolved the WASP and normalized women in the armed forces, forbade women from serving on ships and forbade women from serving in aircraft when aircraft were engaged in a combat mission. And the Navy interpreted combat mission to mean if it could be in combat at any time, not that it was in combat then. So women were basically limited to desk jobs. Only a very small number could be promoted to captain, and a woman could not be a commanding officer over men. So this was these were the restrictions from the end of World War II up to Vietnam. But in 1970, Um, There were huge societal changes at play, and the Navy had a huge personnel problem and a huge morale crisis. The reenlistment rate was at an all-time low. Vietnam was winding down, so whereas the Navy could count on men 
choosing to go to sea rather than go to the army and fight in the jungle. That pipeline was ending. The military draft was about to end, so the Navy was going to have to find a way to attract volunteers. And with the women's movement, jobs were opening beyond the traditional paths of secretary, librarian, and teacher. And that's basically all that was open to women in the Navy at the time. The other thing was that the Equal Rights Amendment was expected to be passed, which meant that all those restrictions on Navy women would have become unconstitutional. So those were the forces at play that opened up this program. Yeah, so you're talking about these limitations, and it's amazing how many of these limitations kind of stayed in force after women are allowed into some of these roles. Like you talk about, they weren't allowed to fly jets, and certainly the combat exclusion thing is, is going to go on for a long time. So can you talk through some of these limitations that still existed after these women were allowed into flight training? Sure. So when flight training opened up, it really wasn't terribly well planned out. There really wasn't a plan for what would happen after they got to their first billets and how they would be integrated. And, you know, there was a lot of resistance. There was a lot of sort of surprise condescension in the press coverage of, you know, these girls who wanted to fly. I mean, one of the one of the first stories where Rosemary Mariner was taking her first flight. She had 620 hours in her logbook. She was a multi-engine instruments flight instructor, and the caption said, pretty Navy pilot. So this was sort of the atmosphere they were coming into and how well the guys in their squadrons were prepared, you know, Maybe yes, maybe no. I mean, this edict came down from the top from Admiral Elmos and Walt that we were going to open flight training to women along with other equal opportunities for women. But an order from the top is not the same as a culture shift. And there were really some mixed messages coming, you know, from the Navy, from within the squadron, from the commanding officers, from, you know, the peers, the officers themselves, along with you know, men who thought this was essential, that it made sense that why would the Navy deprive itself of the best pilots it could possibly have, men or women, because an airplane doesn't know the gender of the pilot. So when they were brought into flight training, um, one of the first things they discovered was that they were now allowed to carry a qualified, which was the defining experience for a naval aviator. This is what distinguished Navy pilots from all others. You go out, you come screaming in, and you land on the carrier, you grab the tail hook, and you're, you know, stopping two seconds flat. But the women were not allowed to do that. And in fact, at one point, they sent a letter up the chain of command asking to be allowed to carry or qualify. And the answer came down was not only no, but maybe not all men need to do that either. Now, they said it was a question of economics, pure coincidence, but to the guys who looked like it looked like something was being taken away from them because the women were there. So that posed some problems. Um, another restriction was that the women were not allowed to fly jets. At the end of flight training, the pilots with the very best grades, the cream of the crop, went to the jet pipeline. And the lesser pilots went to propeller planes or helicopters, but the women weren't allowed to get into the jet pipeline. They did props or helos. And now um, Captain Mariner made her way into the jet pipeline kind of kind of by the back door because her first CO and some other men up the chain of command understood that, well, you need jet pilots, not prop pilots. Sending all your junior officers in for jet transition training meant all your junior officers, including her. And they made sure that she went for transition training with the rest of her squadron. And it's kind of a, a fun fact that of that push and pull the squadron where she learned to fly the A-7, the first woman to solo the A-7, John McCain was the CO. And while she was there, this was great a great publicity opportunity. So for her first solo, he cut it short and had a recall to the base to make sure that the reporters could make their deadlines for the next day's papers. 
Oh, that's fantastic. Now, I want to jump back a little bit. You mentioned Zumwalt, and he's kind of an important figure. What is his role in all of this? Yeah, very much so. So this was pretty much his idea. When he took over as the youngest chief of naval operations in history in 1970, he had this huge crisis on his hand. And what he decided to do was that he needed to change the culture and change how, you know, this hidebound seafaring branch did business. And his mechanism, what were called Z-grams, which was Z like Zumwalt, which were messages directly to the fleet. There were 121 of them. And they covered everything from facial hair to dress codes to racial discrimination. And Z116 was equal rights and opportunities for women in the Navy, which came out in August of 1972. And this opened a very large number of positions that had previously been off limits to women. And about two months later, flight training was included in these newly among these newly opened opportunities. Right. So I think it's important for people to understand that the kind of effects of these limitations, right? You mentioned like when you think of a naval aviator, you think carrier landing, right? There's a part of the identity that goes with that. But there's also, you know, this is a career issue and it's a personnel management issue, right? right? Can you explain how these different roles and some of the different limitations will affect promotion opportunities and things like that? Sure. One thing I, I kind of want to note is that these women are sometimes referred to as a class, and that's really not accurate. They were never all in the same place at the same time. And most of the time, they were nowhere near another, another female officer. They were split up in their training squadrons. When they got to their first village, they were split up. Maybe they were in contact a little bit, but all these obstacles that they faced, they were facing them alone. So, you know, this was really a, a series of individual battles to get what the Navy had promised and what they felt you know, they deserved as, as Navy officers. Um, in terms of these restrictions, you know, they couldn't carry or qualify, which really made them sort of second class citizens. But they were also not allowed to serve on ships. You know, Carl Vinson, who was the head of the House Armed Services Committee in 1948, in writing federal law, said, just see to it that they make it so they can't go to sea. So women were not allowed on ships. So they did not have the various types of experiences that you need to move up the chain of command. They couldn't access the kinds of jobs that you need that bring commendations and provide command experience. The carrier qualifying made, made them second-class citizens in the eyes of other naval aviators. And they absolutely agreed with that. You know, they took a lot of flack for it. And they said, that's absolutely right. We're not assuming the same risks. We're not allowed to, and we want to. But that degree of equality was not afforded them for quite a number of years. For Joellen Drag, who was not allowed to fly out to a ship with her squadron, she couldn't even hover over a ship to deliver the mail. That meant she was losing out on flight time that she needed to advance. And she was held back when her squadron deployed. So she was losing out on, you know, the kind of networking opportunities that you need in any organization to advance. And the men in her squadron and her CEO were extremely supportive, but they really didn't think there was a whole lot they could do, which is why she ended up party to that federal lawsuit. And then there was also, I think what we referred to was the Navy called the combat mission. So Judy Neufer Bruner flew the P-3 Orion into hurricanes, but... That was pretty much the only non-combat, using that word in quotes, assignment for the P P3. All the other billets were supposedly combat, even though there wasn't any combat happening. So she couldn't fly the P3 in any of those squadrons. So where she could go and what she could do was extremely limited. And you know, these women went through the exact same flight training regimen as the men did at great public expense. And now the Navy is denying itself the skills of the pilot 
they trained using public dollars. You know, it you know it really did, really didn't make a lot of sense. Right. You mentioned Bruner flying the P3 in these, frankly, still pretty dangerous missions. Tell us a little bit about what the women were able to do, because they are performing important missions. They're performing them well. They are accomplishing quite a bit, even within the limitations they have. Can you tell us a little bit about what they were contributing in some of the roles they were allowed to fly in? So some of what they were doing, um, you know, there were supply missions in the C-130. Um, Jane Skiles O'Day flew medical evac. Ultimately, um, Joellen Dragoslin was doing um, search and rescue missions. She was the first woman who was stationed a shipboard when these restrictions were finally limited. And she has a great story about being part of a military exercise where there were two helos they were retrieving these target drones and the other helo basically fell in the water. And she was the only woman to complete this mission. And the guys were taking bets that it had actually been the woman who had crashed. And it wasn't. Barb Rainey flew, um, flew supplies, flew VIPs around, as did um, Anna Maria Scott. Rosemary Mariner was able to sort of develop a parallel jet track. She was part of she was a flight instructor in a squadron that was training men for combat. And ultimately, she was commander of an adversary squadron that was impersonating MiGs. So the Soviet Union was the big um, enemy at the time. So teaching men how to fly combat using skills you need for flying combat that she wasn't allowed to use in combat, but she could train the men to do it. Uh, the women weren't allowed to drop bombs in combat, but she could in a research and development capacity. So she did weapons testing in that capacity. So, you know, there were ways to serve and ways around some of these restrictions, but, you know, it's hard enough doing the job without having to bomb and weave to be able to do what you're trained to do. Right. So moving beyond some of these kind of structural, systemic kind of restrictions, there are, of course, the more personal things, right? Some of the unequal treatment or discrimination or worse. Were there any specific instances? I wonder, you tell a lot of stories of this in the book. I was wondering if there was one or two specific ones that jumped out at you as uh, particularly interesting. I mean, in terms of personal safety, there were two that jumped out at me. Um, One involved a woman who was in the second group of female pilot trainees who was in her quarters and a guy opened the door and threw in a live firecracker. And the reason he was able to do that was that the watch officer had given him the key to her quarters. He asked for the key and was handed the key. And she said that a lot of the women preferred to pay for an old, pay for their own apartments rather than live in the bachelor office quarters because they didn't think it was safe. One of the other women in the book who was um, stationed in Europe for um, military exercises was sexually assaulted by some of the men in her squadron, including the CO. They knocked on the door of her hotel room, barged in, unzipped their pants, sat around with their genitals hanging out, and then they pushed her down on the bed and groped her. Fortunately, somebody knocked on the door and interrupted what was going on. But when she filed charges, nothing happened to them. Basically, they testified that it had been a joke. And Why couldn't she take a joke? Um, they got a slap on the wrist and she was drummed out of her squadron. She had to transfer. And this was two years before Tailhook. Yeah. Um, I do want to come back to Tailhook yeah. because 1991 is such a key year. But before we get into Tailhook, I wonder if you could talk but the other big event that happens in 91, which would be Operation Desert Storm, right. uh, which is very important for the women serving in aviation roles. Tell us a little bit about those experiences of women aviators in Desert Storm and, and why that was so important for this whole movement. Right. So by this time, women were fairly well, not necessarily integrated, but there were a lot of women doing a lot of very high profile jobs in the military. They were very visible. They had a lot of responsibility. 
And with these increasing numbers of women came increasing pushback. You know, when there were just six women, six women pilots, nobody really knew they were there. And there was, you know, maybe some pushback within the squadron, but there wasn't, you know, this organized resistance because nobody knew they were there. Now in the 80s, you have many, many more more women coming in and women with those numbers, with those, that, you know, degree of seniority and prestige, you know, they kind of, they can kind of pose a threat, which, you know, I'd like to come back to that. But um, in terms of the Gulf War, um, Rosemary Mariner always said that war presents opportunities. World War II presented opportunities for the WASP. Vietnam presented opportunities for her and the other five original female naval aviators. And the Gulf War um, presented opportunities for female combat pilots because there were so many women doing so many of these jobs in the Gulf, that the difference between combat and non-combat was really a distinction without a difference. Um, they were doing dangerous work. They were flying refueling missions and were vulnerable to being shot down. Women were assigned to air bases on the ground that were less protected than had they been doing the same jobs on a ship protected by the fleet. Women were injured. They were killed. They were taken prisoners of war. And, you know, the press was embedded with all these units. People saw this in their living room. They knew women were paying the price for war. They knew women were soldiers and sailors and airmen and Marines. And they could see this. And it really became clear to the American public that combat, this invisible line, this imaginary line between combat and no combat, didn't really make any difference. They were, you could be killed whether you were in a combat mission or non-combat mission. So, you know, why are, why are we drawing these distinctions that are meaningless? Yeah, absolutely. And that kind of leads into, you know, coming out of that war, then you have the tailhook incident. And it's really impossible to talk about this subject without talking about tailhook. And I, I don't know if all of our listeners know what, what that is in reference to. Can you Explain what happened at this event and what the fallout was and why it was important. Sure. Again, to back up a little bit, because of all this pushback in the 80s, there were a number of sexual harassment scandals. There were investigations looking at military bases all over the world, Pentagon investigations, independent fact-finding missions that found cultures of acceptance of this kind of behavior, failures of leadership from the top, and the Navy had declared a zero-tolerance policy for sexual harassment. Now, the Tailhook Association Convention in 1991 was really all came to a head. The Tailhook Association is an independent organization of naval aviators. Um, Tailhookers, who you are carrier qualified, the tailhook on your airplane catches the arresting cable. You do that 10 times, you are carrier qualified, and you're a tailhooker. In this 91, the conference was held in Las Vegas. The Navy gave its officers time off to attend. They paid for the officers to attend. And this turned into a huge drunken brawl. Over the course of three days, um, drunken men were assaulting, pinching, grabbing, stripping women, officers, civilians, anybody who happened to be there. You know, there was just these terrible series of attacks. There was an investigation that was stonewalled, Eventually, after one of the victims, who was basically told, well, it was her own fault for being there in the first place, filed charges, an investigation did find that at least 26 women had been sexually assaulted. Um, 140 officers were, in theory, um, disciplined, but nothing really happened to them. A couple um, top commanders were forced to resign, and the woman who came forward was ostracized from her unit and had to quit the Navy. Now, one thing that was interesting from my point of view for the book was that 
before these attacks happened, there was an incident at the 91 Tailhook Convention where there was a symposium with six admirals up on a dais and a female aviator stood up and asked when women were going to be allowed to fly in TAC air, which means tactical missions off a aircraft carrier. And the response from the room was jeers and hoots and catcalls, and none of the admirals in the room did anything to stop it. So this sort of seemed like carte blanche. If you can get away with that, well, you, know, you can get away with anything. So it really spoke to, um, you know, to the permissive atmosphere that allowed this um, kinds of, you know, behavior attacks on fellow officers to happen. And that, you know, that's pointed to as really a symptom of what led up to this, um, as was, you know, the attack on um, one of the women in my book two years earlier. And she thoroughly believes that had the perpetrators in that attack suffered any consequences at all, it would have sent a very different message that this is not okay. When there's been a lot of progress since then, but, you know, unfortunately, this sort of thing is still happening. There was an incident at Fort Hood a couple of years ago where an enlisted woman was harassed and ultimately killed and the Pentagon investigation found a lack of leadership and a permissive atmosphere that allowed this kind of things to happen. So it's still unfortunately a current issue. Has much changed since Tailhook? And uh, I mean, obviously you said a lot of progress has been made and I I think that's true. What does that look like for women in aviation today? For many women, the fact that they're women is not an issue. You know, they go through the same rigorous training. They perform with honor and with bravery and they move up the chain of command. They model the same behavior that is, has been modeled for them. And, you know, they have wonderfully satisfying careers. Others, that doesn't happen. And it's really, you know, somewhat of an inconsistent, an inconsistent thing. You know, the old boys network, unfortunately, is still alive and well in many places. You know, I'm thinking about this whole period that you're discussing here from kind of the mid 70s up to present. And it seems like things move in kind of fits and starts, like there'll be some big change, but then maybe there's some pushback or maybe things don't change as much as it seems like they're going to. And then some years will go by, then there's another kind of event that kind of kickstarts things. What do you think are the kind of mechanisms for driving this kind of change? Does Zumwalt or someone like Zumwalt have to be the initiator or does this take more of a ground level kind of thing? You, one of the things that really screams out from your book is, is the level of activism and advocacy that these women have, right? Pushing for getting themselves into combat aviation or, or these other roles. Um, what, what's the more important role and, and how did those mechanisms change in your opinion? I mean, I think it's a combination. I think there has to be leadership from the top. There has to be buy-in from the bottom, you know, just dictating from the top, you know, clearly didn't really do the job. And I think, you know, Zumwalt understood that changing culture is difficult. It takes time and you have a new generation coming in every couple of years and they have to learn the same lessons all over again. You know, I think things have have shifted in, in positive ways. One thing that caught my eye last year was that the drone industry went to the FAA and said that they're not getting all the qualified job candidates they feel they should be because the language of the drone industry and the language of the FAA is exclusionary. And it gives a signal that women do not belong there. And the FAA agreed. And they had a series of public information sessions and they're starting to change the language, which, you know, is not a huge earth shattering development, but it is a recognition that if you have a kind of environment that sends signals, even subtle signals, you're sending an exclusionary message. And this can, in the wrong hands, you know, devolve into something very nasty. 
So you know, that's one, one thing that I found very interesting. Another kind of odd little thing is that last summer, for the first time, the Navy rolled out prototype maternity flight suits. You know, why would they need to do that? Because best pilots are in their 20s. That's your, your prime flying age. It's also prime childbearing age. And not necessarily jets in combat, but in any kind of flying assignment. If you're wearing clothing that do not fit and you have loose fabric in a cockpit and it catches on the uh, on the flight controls, that's not safe. And, you know, back in 1978, when Jane Skiles O'Day became pregnant and the CO who had told her she was not allowed to use the bathroom at Rota, Spain, ended up with a pregnant pilot on his hands. The expectation was that she was going to quit and she and her husband said, nope, they didn't have any maternity uniforms at all. So she had to create something from civilian clothes. But now, you know, how many decades later, we finally have maternity flight suits. So, you know, there there is a recognition that, you know, there is a very skilled population that needs some, can't do things the way it's always been done. And, you know, if you shift a little bit, you make those accommodations, you have, you know, the most skilled people, you know, doing these incredibly difficult jobs. Um, I just have one more question. Thinking back to these specific six women, what do you think their legacy is up to now? And, and why is it important to go back and look at their story now? Because, you know, like we said, these things are cyclical and there's going to be pushback and there's great value, I believe, in understanding that you're not the first, you're not the only one this has happened to. People have gone through it. Here is how they did it. Here is how they survived and here is how they persevered. For the first six female naval aviators, they had the examples of the wasp. They knew how they had proven that, you know, women could absolutely fly as well as men, even though they had to go and prove that all over again. They saw what had happened to the wasp and they were determined that that was not going to happen again. They in turn fought for women to fly in combat. By the time that really became possible, they were too old. They had aged out. This was not a fight they were fighting for themselves. They were fighting it for the next generation. So there's this thread of history and support that makes it possible for even pioneering women to understand that, yes, you're a pioneer, but you're not really a pioneer because people have gone before you. They modeled lessons of perseverance and courage and determination and persistence, um, getting what you should get, even if the answer is no, be respectful, uh, be professional, but don't take no for an answer. Find another way to do it. Pick your battles and you'll find help maybe from from unexpected quarters. Going back to the, the, the missing woman flyover over Captain Mariner's funeral, which, you know, started the whole book. Um, there were eight F-18 pilots, female F-18 pilots, and there were Top Gun grads in that group. There were combat veterans in that group. And they traced a line back to her and, you know, the other original female naval aviators for enabling them to have the careers they had. That's fantastic. We're about out of time, but uh, where else can we find more of you online? The book, again, is Wings of Gold. Um, it's available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble and at your local independent bookstore. And I highly recommend patronizing your local independent bookstore. My website is beverlyweintraub.com. I'm on Facebook and on Twitter and on Instagram. The Instagram account is Wings of Gold Book at Beverly Weintraub, at Bev Weintraub one 
on Twitter and Beverly Weintraub at Facebook. Excellent. Uh, well, you can find more of me at mwhankins.com and we're online at balloonsadrones.com. For those listening, again, please check out the book. It's Wings of Gold, the story of the first women naval aviators by Beverly Weintraub from Lions Press. Thank you for listening. All of our music was created by Jason Davis at Digital Fish Media, which you can find on Facebook at digitalfishmedia.org. If you'd like to send us an email, please visit balloonsadrones.com slash contact. And we'd also love to see any article submissions you have if you'd like to send something to us. Thank you, and we will see you all next time.